Well, good morning, High Point. Thank you for being with us this morning. I'd like to thank everybody who's also joining us online. We're glad to have you with us. You know, if you were to visit my uh, office this afternoon, you would see on the bookshelf behind my desk a college diploma. You would also find a certificate confirming that I'm an ordained minister of the Assemblies of God. I am blessed to hold credentials with the Assemblies of God Fellowship, and I am often reminded of the much studying and the hard work that went into that happening. I'm also thankful for the many things that I have learned, not just through my formal education, but like all of us, what I've learned through the School of Hard Knocks, right? But you know, as I look back over my life, I would have to say that some of the most valuable lessons have not come from a textbook. They have not come from a classroom. Many life's lessons have been learned by simply watching and observing other people and how they have reacted, how they have responded to certain situations. And such is the case in our scripture reference for this morning. So I'd like you to go ahead, if you wouldn't turn to John chapter six. And while you're doing that, let me say that uh, when we get to the point of actually reading our scripture reference after this introduction, I want us to watch the people that John is writing about within these verses to see what we can learn from each one of them. I realize this isn't usually how we study the Bible, but I really believe that taking a different approach in studying this particular text this morning is important. The reason I say that is because our story this morning is so very familiar to all of us. In fact, it's one of the most remembered stories found in the Word of God. I'm sure that we all have pictures in our mind of this event and what it looked like and how it occurred because we've heard it so many times. I'm referring to the story known as the feeding of the 5,000. As I said, this is such a familiar story that the familiarity can actually be a hindrance to our understanding of it. What I mean is the familiarity makes us think that we already know everything that there is to know. So if you are tempted to check out on me this morning and to surf on your iPhone, the internet, instead of listening over the next 30 minutes, I would encourage you not to do that. I know who you are. I can see you from up here. So you're chuckling, but I know which ones you are. I see it all the time. I want you to hang in there with me because we're going to look at this beloved story in a different way, a way that I believe God will use to help us to see things, to find new truth that maybe we never recognized before in this miraculous story. And I'd like to also point out that this is a must-read kind of a story, because it, came, it contains truth that we simply cannot overlook. And the reason I say that is because it is the only miracle that God inspired four different writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to include in their gospel accounts. And they do so in a way that brings out the part of the story that really spoke to them individually. For example, Matthew and, uh, and, and Luke are obviously most interested in the miracle itself. Uh, I say that because they tell of how Jesus multiplied the five loaves and the two fishes without a whole lot of fanfare. It's just, it's the miracle that they are impressed with. Mark, on the other hand, I believe that he tends to focus more on Jesus' compassion by stressing the fact that he fed this multitude out of his great love and out of his great mercy and out of his great care for these hungry people. John's account tends to revolve around the historical significance of this event. He also stresses the fact that Jesus is in fact himself the bread of life because only a relationship with him will satisfy people spiritually. Now, the reason I point out the four different takes on this story is because, to me, the telling of the same story by four different authors is critical because it is the strongest evidence that we have of the reliability of these men as historians. And the things that they agree on are such that this story could not have been made up by each man separately. And their differences are such 
that they obviously were not collaborating together. So if they were not made up separately or in collaboration, the only remaining possibility is that they were not made up at all. But this is a true story. This miracle that we know so well, the one that we read about in the four different gospel accounts, really did happen. It really did happen. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to John chapter 6 and follow along with me as we read the first 15 verses. And we'll be reading from the New International Version. And again, as I'm reading this, I want you to pay attention to the people, to the players who are involved in this story, who play a part in this beloved story. John 6, 1 through 15, the scriptures say, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming toward him, and he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of barley, five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And the people saw the sign Jesus performed. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, before we study this familiar story by watching the people that are within it, let me try and give you a mental picture of the setting going on here. In verse 1, John says this miraculous feeding occurred, and I quote, sometime after this. Those four words represent anywhere from six months to one year after what we studied last week. And here's a quick synopsis of the things that happened during this time period. Jesus' drumhead trial that we spoke about last week was concluded. Afterwards, Jesus left Jerusalem for Galilee where he was involved with extensive ministry. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was casting out demons, he was performing many miracles or signs as John refers to them as. And because of this, Jesus became extremely popular and wherever he went, large crowds would follow him. Whenever word got out that Jesus was in an area, people would pour in from everywhere all throughout the day and night. So Jesus wanted to be alone with his disciples. If he wanted to be alone with them, he had to be intentional about it. So please understand the importance of Jesus being alone with his disciples because only one year remained before his appointment with the cross. And he had so much that he needed to teach these men in a short amount of time. Plus, Jesus needed rest. He was under continuous strain due to the demands of these crowds. And so were his disciples. Mark's gospel tells us that his disciples had just returned from an extensive preaching tour of their own. In short, Jesus and his inner circle needed a little bit of R&R. They needed to get away. They, and, and I think this should help us to see the importance of our own time of solitude. Every one of us needs to have time away. You can't just keep burning the candle at both ends because eventually there's going to be nothing to burn. 
Mark 6.31 puts it this way. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. These guys couldn't even find time to eat. Jesus told them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Well, that's what was happening in the first three verses of this passage. Jesus was taking his disciples away for a much needed retreat of sorts. John tells us that Jesus, and I quote, crossed over to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee to a part of the shoreline that was fairly remote. It was fairly desolate. It was a place that they could go and hopefully not be disturbed. But the text also tells us that these crowds were very persistent and they followed him right up to the shoreline as he departed. And apparently they continued to stand there long enough to watch him as he sailed off and continued, continued to watch to see exactly where he landed on the other side of the water. And then they followed him by walking along the shoreline. Luke's gospel tells us that, that Jesus was heading for a region near the village of Bethsaida. This would mean that those people in that crowd who watched Jesus land on the other side of the water had to walk nine miles to get to where he was. Well, Jesus and his crew, they landed the boat on the beach, they climbed up a hillside, and they began their little retreat. But it wasn't long until they looked up and they saw a cloud of dust that was being created by this multitude of people who had followed him. Now understand, Jesus wasn't angry by their persistence. He was actually compassionate. He was very empathetic. His first thought was not about his own personal weariness or that of his disciples, but his thoughts were about the crowd. He knew from the distance that they walked that they would be tired and based upon the time of day that they would be very hungry after that walk. It's in the middle of the afternoon. People would not have eaten since breakfast time. So with all that in mind, I want to take a look at this familiar story and see what we can learn by, from the perspective of the players within the story. And the first person that I want us to watch is really not a person at all, but a group. Let's take our first look at this huge crowd. To be accurate, verse 2 calls it a great crowd. Other translations refer to it as a great multitude. Well, that was not any kind of an exaggeration. This was a large group of people. Verse 10 says that there were about 5,000 men. Matthew 14, 21 gives us the best tally when it says this. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This means that when you add these 5,000 men's wives and children, there were probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000 or more people there. And to help you to put that into perspective, this sanctuary that you are sitting in, if we all sat close together like it was intended, instead of big gaps between the families, this place could hold about 700 people. So to put that into perspective, this, the, the, it would mean that that would be enough people to fill this sanctuary, both main floor and balcony, 25 times. That's how big this crowd was. They followed Jesus up to that remote mountainside. Imagine that. And as I said, it was getting late. So all of these thousands of people were tired from their long journey, and they were hungry. Now, you know, when we think about hunger in our culture, it's not really that big of a deal. When hunger hits us, we can always pick up food on the fly. Our problem is deciding which fast food restaurant to go to to solve our hunger pangs. Let's see, we have McDonald's and Burrito Bandito and Wendy's and Subway and Taco Bell. Anybody notice Taco Bell's closed? Yeah, I knew you did. I noticed it too but it'll be back new and better than ever, and you can get your tostadas anytime you want. But you gotta understand that hunger, and I'm talking about genuine hunger, was a constant companion to these people. It was an enemy that they were always trying to, to keep at bay. The harvests, well, they were uncertain. 
there always wasn't enough to eat. So this crowd really understood what it was like to be hungry. I'm sure that most of them were living right above the poverty line or below, and this certainly was not a rich area. So as they climbed that hillside, these people were in need of more than just a snack. They kept following Jesus instead of stopping to get food because they, they had seen him do miracles. They had seen him uh, heal the sick. And I believe that they knew that he could also fill their stomachs. They had seen his power. And so they followed him with growling stomachs and probably at this point blistered feet from the long walk that they had made. And I don't mean to sound uncompassionate this morning, but basically these hungry people were following Jesus for themselves. They were looking at what they could get from our Lord. They were looking out for themselves the whole time. This, in a, in a sort of way, this was a group of Jesus, I'm following you to see what I can get out of you kind of people. I say this because John tells us that after Jesus miraculously filled their stomachs, he had to withdraw from them. Why? Because they wanted to seize him. They wanted to make Jesus their king by force. They wanted Jesus for their own purposes. They were looking for a Messiah who would also be a conquering king. They were looking for someone who would not only put food into their bellies, but a ruler who would drive the Romans from Palestine. They wanted a leader who would change Israel from that of a subject nation to a world power. They wanted Jesus solely for what Jesus could do for them. Now I want you for just a minute to turn your eyes away from those people and let's honestly look at ourselves for just a moment. As you watch yourself, as you review your own life, can you see a time when you have been like this multitude? Sure you can. We all can. Our human nature is to be that way. Most of the time when we go to Jesus in prayer, it's to receive something. We want to get his help. We want to get his strength. We want to get his provision. We want to get his guidance. More often than not, just like this crowd, we follow Jesus too to see what we can get out of him. Don't get me wrong. Jesus encourages us to bring our needs and our petitions and our requests before him. But if that's all we do, then I would have to say that our relationship with him is far too one-sided. What we should do is not just go to him to ask for something, but we should go to him to offer him something. Our morning prayers should involve phrases like, God, please use me today in ways that will fulfill your kingdom purposes here on this earth. Our mindset when we get up in the morning every day shouldn't just be to go to work and to do our job, but to do our job in a way that brings glory to God. Amen. We should be willing to give of ourselves and to others in love and, and in, in patience and in understanding and in care. These are ways in which we give back to the Lord by being extensions of his love and his goodness towards other people and caring about and for them. That's called giving to God. You, it's allowing yourself to be used by God throughout the day to make a difference for his kingdom purposes. I wonder how much could be done for the sake of God and for his kingdom and the gospel if every Christian focused more on giving back to God instead of always wanting to receive from him. The second person that I want us to watch this morning is Philip. So put yourself back in that setting and, and go back just a bit. Jesus and the disciples, they are sitting on this, this grassy hillside overlooking the peaceful Sea of Galilee. They're having a retreat. There's a gentle breeze that is blowing off of the waters and the sound of waves is gently lapping up on the shore. Things are quiet. Things are peaceful. 
Then they look down and they see this throng of people coming. John 1.44 tells us that Philip was from this area. So I don't know, perhaps that's why Jesus looks at the approaching crowd and then he looks to Philip and he says, here they come. What are we gonna do, Philip? What would you advise? Of course, Jesus didn't need an answer to that question. He already knew what he was going to do. John reminds us that he was questioning Philip as, as a part of his plan, as kind of to test him. Probably the right answer from Philip would have been, uh, I don't know, Jesus. <laughs> what do you think we ought to do? But Philip didn't do that. Instead, he engages his brain in an attempt to answer that question himself. And when you think about it, there are a lot of different kind of brains out there, aren't there? We have uh, philosophical brains. Those are the kind of people who take everything to a really, really deep level. They're sometimes even hard to follow. They're so deep. Some people have dramatic brains. They're always melodramatic and poetic about everything. Some have mathematical brains. They make good engineers. They make good accountants. I think the latter kind of explains more the brain that Philip had here in this situation. Because look at his answer to Jesus' question. In verse 7, Philip said, it would take more than a half a year's wage, wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Imagine what it would be like if you went to dinner, and when the check came, it looked more like your W-2 than your bill. <laughs> That's the mental image, I think, that, that Philip's mathematical brain kicked out in this situation. He calculated the size of the crowd, he calculated the cost of the bread, and he came to this conclusion. There's this huge multitude, one bite per person, there would be a cost beyond our ability to pay. I'm not sure where or how he came up with this calculation, but basically, this is what Philip was saying. Jesus, I know that in Cana, you turned the water into wine. I know that you healed the nobleman's son. I know that you made the paralyzed man to walk, but there are 20,000 empty stomachs heading our way. And we, don't just, we just don't have the funds necessary to buy all the bread to feed these people. Even if we completely drained our treasury, Jesus, we would only have enough to give each person a tiny little scrap of food. Plus, Jesus, I'm from this area, and I can tell you there are no Wendy's or McDonald's around here anywhere. <laughs> Philip was being practical. Philip was being a realist. He saw the number of people, he calculated the cost, and in his mind, he arrived to the only reasonable conclusion, it cannot be done. Now stop looking at Philip for a minute, and let's put our eyes back on ourselves again. Are you ever that way? Do you ever measure what God can do in your life based upon the size of your bank account? Do you ever calculate Jesus' abilities in a way that it never exceeds your own personal abilities? I think we all do that too. I think that is very human for each and every one of us. Many times we don't attempt to do anything great for God because we don't factor into our calculation just how great God actually is. We limit what we attempt to do for him based upon what we know we can safely and comfortably do ourselves. In other words, we don't rely on him. We rely upon our own self-sufficiency and our self-sufficiency tells us, I can do this, I can't do that. And instead of going to that, which God would give us the strength to do, we fall back on what we know we can do. So we're not even allowing God to use us because we put limits on what he can do. I heard a story of an old seminary professor named Clyde Francisco. While he was attending seminary, he pastored what was known back then, I don't know if you've ever heard of this term, a halftime church. It's pretty much like it sounded. Their church only met half of the time. They met every other Sunday. And every other Sunday, he would leave, leave the campus where he was going to school, and he would go to that church, and he would preach. 
Of course, a halftime church meant that they only paid him a halftime salary as well. Well, one day the trustees of the church came to him and they said, Pastor, we can't afford to pay you a halftime salary anymore. We think we should cut back and be a quarter-time church. What do you think? Dr. Francisco thought a moment and then he said, here's what I think you should do. Start worshiping every Sunday and pay me a full-time salary. Your problem is that you are worshiping your bank account more than you are worshiping God. And in essence... He was right, because they were thinking exactly like like Philip did. They said that they were doing God's work. They said that they were relying on him, but in reality, they weren't. They were relying upon their own abilities. Fortunately, the people of this little country church had enough faith and enough wisdom to do what their halftime pastor suggested. So they voted and they became a full-time church and paid their pastor a full-time salary and God blessed that little congregation with amazing growth because they learned to trust in God to meet their needs. Listen, is there a mountain-sized problem in your life right now? And, And realistically, you are thinking, I can't handle this on my own. Well, if you are, that's, that's probably a good place to be because you are right. Life is full of problems. Life is full of nightmares that we cannot possibly handle on our own. But that's why the gospel message of Jesus Christ is so good. We invite Jesus into our hearts and lives, and he really does come in. The Spirit of God indwells us. And from then on, we don't have to handle life's mountain-sized problems on our own ever again. From then on, we have Almighty God right there to walk with us in lockstep, step-by-step, day-by-day, until we get through that crisis. One thing that you will learn while studying the Word of God is that God uses these words regularly. I am with you. Fear not. I am with you. Could it be that Jesus, in this problem that you have, is testing you like he did Philip that day? Maybe he's, he's allowing some overwhelming difficulty to happen in order to test you so that he can prove to you his power and his love. Maybe he's calling you to do something beyond your resources and something that will force you to rely on his power and his provision instead of your own. Let's move on to the third person I want us to watch, and that's Andrew. I've said this before, but I think it would have been very easy for Andrew to suffer from an identity crisis. Because he is always introduced in the scriptures as Peter's brother. And if you had a brother or sister who was more popular than you, then I think you understand how Andrew felt. People would say, here's Andrew. And people would say, Andrew who? Well, you know, Peter's brother. Oh, oh, him. (laughs) That's the way it is. Every time he's in the Bible, he's being introduced that way. Look at verse 8 and 9 where it says, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Now for a minute, I want you to try to get that flannel graph picture out of your mind that you saw as a kid in Sunday school when your Sunday school teacher was putting those flannel things on the, on the board and telling you this story. Because you have to understand, this boy didn't just present himself to Jesus out of thin air. Andrew had to go looking for him. And we know Andrew was good at this kind of thing because every time we read about him in the scriptures, he's finding people that need to be brought to Jesus. So that's what Andrew does. He hears Jesus asking Philip about how they could get enough food to feed all of these people, and he immediately heads off into the crowd looking for people who have food. But out of those thousands of people, The only one Andrew can find with any food is this young boy, a kid whose mother wouldn't let him leave home without his lunchbox that day. Now, I understand that Andrew's uh, statement in verse 9 doesn't appear to have a whole lot more faith than Phillips does, but the way I see it, Andrew 
goes one step further than his fellow faithless disciple. Unlike Philip, who basically said, uh, this situation is hopeless, Andrew is at least thinking, I'll see what I can do, and then I will trust Jesus with the rest. So he found this little boy, and he brings him to Jesus, and he presents his lunchbox. And that's a principle in this story that we must see, that it is what can happen when we bring what we have before Christ, instead of holding it back in reserve. We have this way of keeping back our best often. We don't want to be stretched too far. We, we don't want to work ourselves out of our comfort zone. I'm very comfortable where I'm at right now. It's a very nice little cocoon of love and peace and kumbaya that I'm involved in. And I really don't want to be bothered with that because life is going so good and, and I don't want any interruptions to that. And God, you might push me to a level that I'm uncomfortable with when it's really what I need in my life, but I really don't want to hear that that's what you say I need in my life. So I'm just going to stay in my comfortable little zone, my comfort zone. A little box. You're sitting in it right now. You all have your assigned seats that you come to every week, and that's your comfort zone. That's your little box that you're sitting in. This is my comfort zone right here. I stay right here. We never know what Christ can do with what we bring to him. And we will never know what Christ can do until we bring it to him. God can take any life and he can do a miracle with that life even today. Just like he did with that lunch that Andrew brought him. There is a tale of an old German schoolmaster in the Middle Ages. And every morning... When he arrived at the classroom of all boys, he would remove his cap and he would ceremonially bow to his students. He did this every day. And once somebody asked him, why do you do that? And here was his reply. You never know what one of these boys might someday become. And he was right. Because one of those boys sitting in his class was Martin Luther. Do we ever really know the possibilities that we can realize when we bring someone to Christ Jesus? Too many times I, I fear we write people off. At times we view those who are lost as not being worth our time. But God never writes anybody off. He can take any life and he can rebirth it. And he can do amazing things in and through that life. In fact, looking back on my years in ministry, I'm going to tell you something. Often it is the unlikely ones that have done the greatest things. The ones that you have looked at and you thought in your own flesh, that person will never amount to anything. That person doesn't have the ability to speak. That person doesn't have the ability to serve. They can't do the things the way so-and-so does it. And guess what? It's that person that does great exploits for Jesus Christ while the, while the really polished one sits in his box. Because that's where I'm comfortable. I have an equation that I would like to make since, uh, since we talked about mathematical equations. Here it is. Jesus plus an individual equals amazing potential. And this equi equation can be applied to any person, no matter what age, no matter what size, no matter what your abilities or your handicaps are. That means that equation can even be applied to you. You and you and you and you and you. It can be applied to you. So quit doubting what you can accomplish for the Lord. All he is looking for is a vessel who will trust him enough to offer themselves fully to him. And watching Andrew's part of this story, I think really helps us to see this. And that leads me to one more person I want to watch. And that is the star of this story. It's the little boy, the boy with his lunch. This kid brought his lunch to Jesus. But please don't get into your mind that he was a big eater. When it says five loaves and two fish 
In your mind, you may be thinking, okay, that's two grilled salmon and five of those loaves of bread you get at the Outback Steakhouse. But that's not at all what he's talking about here. These loaves were more like Twinkie-sized biscuits, flat Twinkie-sized biscuits. And the fish was more like tiny salt-cured sardines. They were fish that was typically used like a spread to put on that dry barley biscuit and to give it some kind of flavor. And speaking of barley bread, it was the cheapest of all the bread of that day. It was, a, it was a bread that most people would turn their noses up against. Barley bread was the bread of the very poor. This little boy was carrying around with him the lowest quality bread available to people that day. And I don't know if you've ever been poor enough not to know where your next meal was going to come from, but if you have, then you'd understand that this wasn't a casual thing for this boy to simply give up his food of that day, but he did. Why? Because this little guy wasn't like the crowd. He wasn't trying to get something out of Jesus. He, was, he wasn't like Philip. He wasn't calculating the, the costs and the ways that this wasn't going to work. He simply brought everything he had to the Lord. Lock, stop, and lock stock, and barrel and laid it in his lap. He didn't have much to offer. But what he had to offer, Jesus found the materials in order to make this miracle happen. By the way, one biblical commentator said that there were two miracles that day. One, that Jesus fed the 5,000. The other, that the little boy hadn't eaten his lunch already. <laughs> In any case, the fact that somebody who probably went to bed hungry most nights of his life was willing to share his lunch, well, that's proof that someone raised this kid right. His parents didn't have enough money to feed him the best foods, but they did feed him the best wisdom. They taught him the importance of sharing. Think about it. There would have been one less miracle to be found in the scriptures if that boy had withheld his lunch from Jesus. So parents, never underestimate the power of your parenting. The things that you think are going in one ear and out the other, they're not. They're just being blocked temporarily. It will come out. It will come out in the time when it's most needed. And please hear me out. Jesus wants what we can bring to him. He longs to see what we will bring to him. I am confident that our world has been denied miracle after miracle, triumph after triumph, because we will not bring to Jesus what we have fully and who we are. It was D.L. Moody who said, the world has yet to see what God can and will do with one man or woman who dedicates their lives totally to his use. Never forget this. Little is a lot in Jesus' hands. Nothing is in insignificant that is in God's hands. And this is clearly seen throughout the Bible. For example, what is more insignificant than dust? Nothing. Vegetation won't even grow in it. And yet, dust became man in God's hands. The jawbone of an ass is insignificant. Yet, God used it in the hands of Samson to kill thousand soldiers of the armies of the enemies of Israel. A shepherd's rod is insignificant, but it became powerful when God put it in the hands of Moses. A boy's slingshot is insignificant, and yet God used it to kill a giant. And what is more insignificant than a poor peasant girl? And yet God took a poor virgin peasant girl named Mary, and he used her to bring in the Redeemer of the world into our world. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that what you have is insignificant and useless because let me tell you something, in God's hands, it will become significant and it will become useful. Can I hear an amen? amen. Well, you know the rest of the story. Jesus said, have him sit down. This is the way you sat when you got ready to eat. 
It was a position of, of expectation. It was sort of like Jesus was saying, get your fork and spoon and your plates ready, folks, because we're going to chow down. Then before the, the, the miracle, Jesus gives thanks, a principle of gratitude, again, that we all should practice as well. And then he begins to break up those barley cakes and those fish in half again and again and again and again and again. You can see the assembly line process. Can you imagine how many times Jesus broke those loaves and those fish? And he passed them on to the disciples. And the disciples passed them on to the people. It had to have gone on for quite a long time. I mean, you can't feed that many people that quickly. You know how long it takes to feed 350, 400 of you in the gymnasium? Could you imagine feeding 20,000 people as you're breaking by hand fish and bread? And I can only imagine the expression on that little boy's face. Every time Jesus reached into his lunch pail and he's thinking to himself, mom only packed five loaves and, 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 and two fish. Where in the world is all this food coming from? Jesus just kept pulling it out more and more until the people in that crowd experienced something that they rarely experienced, full stomachs. John says in verse 11, he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. That tells me they didn't only get first, but they got seconds. And some may have even gotten thirds. So these hungry people were fed to the limits of their stomach's capacity. In other words, they were stuffed. They couldn't eat another bite. Then after the people had eaten their fill, Jesus asked his disciples to gather together the leftovers in a basket. And when they were done, <laughs> they had 12 baskets of food left over. Now, you know, liberal theologians, I talked about them the other day. They try to explain away this miracle. They, they say things like the disciples had a cave where they had stored tons of fish and bread for such a time as this. Others have said that the people were so moved by this little boy's generosity that other people started walking up and handing Jesus their bag lunch as well. That doesn't make sense. Because if you recall, Andrew had searched the crowd to find this young kid. But I think the thing that best negates these statements from these liberal theologians, these people who try to explain away this miracle, is the context. It just doesn't support that kind of thinking. I mean, why else would each of the disciples include this story in their gospel account? Why else would the people respond to what happened by trying to make the miracle-working Jesus their king? If this wasn't a miracle, why would they even do that? They wouldn't. If you look down at verse 26, Jesus himself said this. He said, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. This was a miracle, folks. This was a God thing. It could only happen through the power of God. And by including it, in the Holy Scriptures, not once, not twice, not three times, but four different times by four different writers, God is saying, listen, you take care of the addition, and I'll take care of the multiplication. You bring me what you have, and I will bring forth a miracle out of what you bring me. Be like this little boy. Bring me your little, because with me and in my hands, a little will be a lot. Scott, will you please come forward? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. Friends, please listen to me this morning. The, th the same Jesus who walked across that gr grassy hillside and performed this miracle is the same Jesus who is in our midst this morning. With that in mind, let me ask you, 
as you watch yourself, as you evaluate your own Christian life, who from this story do you find yourself most being like? Are you like the crowd? Do you come here because you're looking for what you can get out of it? You're, you're here just simply to have your needs met? Maybe you're, you're more like Philip. You know what Jesus is asking you to do, but you think uh, realistically and you conclude there's no way. What you're asking me to do, God, just doesn't add up. It's, it's beyond my capabilities. You may have walked in here this morning like the crowd, or you may have walked in here this morning like Philip, but here's what I'm asking you to do today. I'm asking you to leave here like that little boy. I'm asking some of you for perhaps the first time in your Christian life for you to turn your life, your existence, everything that you are, everything that you're about over to Jesus and quit holding back in reserves parts of you that you either don't want him to see or you don't want the world to see or to know about or maybe it's your precious time or maybe it's infringing on something and you don't want to be infringed on. I don't know what it is that causes us to hold back, but we do. And when I say bring everything you have, I'm not talking about your money. It's the furthest thing from my mind this morning. It's not your financial resources. This church is very faithful in the giving of their financial resources. I'm talking about your life. And what I'm talking about is Jesus being Lord over every part of it. He's not just Lord over when you're here, but he's Lord in your household. He's Lord in your social activities. He's Lord in the workplace. He's Lord in everything you do and all that you are. That no one should ever have to sit back and go, hmm, I get glimpses that this guy might be a believer because he's different than everybody else, but then I see other sides of him and he's just as ugly and cantankerous as I am. Are you giving the Lord everything that you are? Are you allowing him through the work of the Holy Spirit to transform you and to make you into a useful servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Being like this little boy and turning over whatever you have to Jesus could entail several different kinds of decisions. It could mean that you finally decide publicly to profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's where it begins. In order for God to use you in some great way, you've got to know him first. You've got to allow him lordship over your life. And you determine that you will follow him. You will follow his lead as he directs you. It could, be me. It could mean saying yes to something God has asked you to do, something that you've already calculated in your mind and you think is beyond your capabilities. And you need to say, I don't have the necessary resources to do this, but what I do have, God, I'm gonna give to you. And I'm trusting that you will take it and you will multiply it for your glory to get this job done. It could mean saying yes to filling a need within your own church serving here in some capacity. You know, we all got comfortable during COVID. It was nice sitting at home, watching the services in our pajamas and the cup of coffee in hand. Amen, Pastor David. <laughs> Can I just say, it's time to come back. Yeah. I'm looking at the camera. It's time for you to come back. Amen. We're not complete without you. We don't have restrictions anymore, at least for the time being. It's time to come back. You're missing out on the fellowship that God so desperately knows that you need as a Christian. It's also time to get back serving. We are in crisis mode in our children's ministry right now, folks. I don't know if you know that. We got slim pickings of people that are willing to step up and are willing to minister to our, in our children's ministry. Few are willing to serve. Few are willing to offer themselves in this capacity any longer. And as a church, we are only as good as our serving will allow us to be. 
We can no longer take on the attitude, somebody else is going to do that. That somebody else is you. Even if it's for a period of time, it is you. We've all got to get involved. We've all got to do something for God's kingdom. We cannot neglect our children. They are our next generation. They should be our most precious possession at this place. And we should give our all and all to them, every one of us. We've got to find a place to serve in God's kingdom, in his church. If you don't, you will grow stagnant in your Christian walk. It just happens. And that little box gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it squeezes you right out. And pretty soon you don't have that box anymore. You're not even serving the Lord because you have no concept of what it is. You've, you've gotten so far away from it, you're just kind of existing. So we got to offer not just our precious time, but our talents and our gifts to the Lord. And we've got to watch as he multiplies them. We've got to watch as when he, when you say, I can't do that. He says, oh yes, you can. And I'm going to show you how, and I'm going to empower you to do it. And then we do it and great things happen. I want to open this altar this morning. If God has been dealing with you through this message, I want you to come and kneel at this altar. And I want you to seek his direction. Maybe you need clarity. Maybe you need him to give you some further confidence to know and to take that next step. Whatever it is, he will offer it to you. You can't just do those things or take those things that God is dealing with you on and just stuff it away out of fear, out of doubt, out of wondering what it all entails or your perceived limitations because it'll never get done. It'll just get put on the back burner and one more miracle for God is now over. Come down here. Take it up with the very one who has laid it on your heart. The very one who can give you the strength and the power and the ability and the vision to actually do it. If you decided this morning that you'd like to receive salvation, you've never committed your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in order to receive salvation, you must believe and you must confess. You can do that at this altar. You can do it from your, your pew. You can do it in your, your sofa at home. You just pray, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. You're the only way to God the Father. I give my life to you today. Forgive me of my sin. Become the Lord of my life. And the Bible says he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You'll become a new creature. Creation, excuse me. We're creatures too. You become a new creation and God will use you in great ways, very much like I'm talking about here this morning. He will provide you with the strength. He will provide you with the wisdom, the clarity to live life every day in a way that brings glory to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you have a need, if you have anything you want to take, to, take up with the Lord today as the worship team sings, come to this altar. I'm going to pray over those who come, Chris and I will, and then we'll dismiss you in a closing prayer.
All those at the altar continue to pray. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Precious Lord, thank you for your word. So powerful. Hidden within there is truth that we desperately need. And fathers, we've watched people in this story today and how they responded to a great need. I believe it's taught us a lot. The main thing it's taught us is that uh, with you, all things are possible. In our own strength, in our own flesh, God, we, we just can't do it. Oh, we can do some things. But the great things, the miraculous things are only done when your hand is upon us, you've anointed us, you've strengthened us through your spirit. God, make us a church full of people who want to be used by you. Father, get us out of our comfort zone. Get us out of our box. Allow us to take risks. And in those risks, we would trust you enough to know that you can use us greatly. We may not feed 20,000 people, but we do have the ability to change a life by leading that life to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the most honorable thing we can do. And sometimes that is just simply by living a God-honoring life before those who are around us. So I pray that you use us mightily, Lord. Pray that this church body would individually unleash all of their strength, all of their potential, all of their gifts, all of their abilities, and just put it in a nice little package and drop it at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, here, here I am. All of me, not part of me. I give it to you and I ask you to use it. And Father, I know you will. And I pray for strength. I pray that you would eliminate fear. Pray that you would bolster confidence to know that there's nothing we cannot do without you by our side and that we would move forward and do the things you've asked us to do. Anyone here today who does not know you or watching online, Father, I pray that they have the confidence to pray a simple prayer of salvation, identifying that you are the Son of God, the only way to God the Father, identifying that you are the only one who can wash away our sins and asking you to do that, and then receiving you as Lord and Savior, Father. Thank you for those who prayed that prayer today. may never know who they are, but you do. They've been added to the roles of the kingdom of God. So, Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, places we go, the things we do, conversations that we have, that those conversations would build up and not tear down, that you would strengthen us to be the men and women of God you need us to be, that we would be bright lights to a very dark world, that even at work and other places outside of these four walls, your love would come shining through in such a way that people would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are followers of the one true God. And that would compel them to want to know what we've got that is different. And Father, that we would share your goodness with them. Open our mouths to say the things that we need to say to lead others to the cross. And then watch as we sit back and know that we had a part. We played a part in bringing someone to you. And then when we watch what you do in their life, it's a great sense of accomplishment. It's a great sense of feeling like we have a spiritual son or daughter in our own life that we helped and we've walked that walk with them and we've walked that journey and we've helped to disciple them as men and women of God. And in discipling them, we get discipled as well and everybody grows from the situation. So Lord, use us this week until we gather together again. Use us. Help us to be a beacon of light. I ask also that you keep us safe. Keep us safe from COVID. Keep us safe from any other sickness and disease. And Father, help us to sidestep any accidents that may come our way. It would be caused to, to put us on the sideline. We don't want to be on the sideline. We want to be in the game. And I pray that you'll use us mightily in doing so. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus, your son. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.